Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman. I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And Callum Petch. Hello. As we tackle the last week or so in film, including a review of the newly released live action CGI, whatever you want to call it, uh, Jungle Book movie. Uh, yeah, live action. They weren't real bears. Well. It's not a real bear or monkeys. No. It was a real boy. It was a real boy, so, but no gigantic no. copolopolis. No, yeah. I got that. I got that a bit wrong. There's a live action coming out in 2018. And I don't quite understand anything anymore. Um, <laughs> overkill on Jungle Book, maybe, but we'll talk about Jungle Book later. Obviously, got all the usual bits and pieces as well. We'll start with the quiz. I'm one nil up. Callum is is playing on my behalf, uh, Owen, against him, where I'm asking questions. And this week, as we're reviewing the Jungle Book, and there's lots of animals with voices of famous people in the Jungle Book. I have found five animals from films and you've got to tell me multiple choice who is voicing those animals. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to be terrible at it. Good. Right. Um, so you have <laughs> quite a lot to live up to this week, by the way. We had a, a comment about um, Paul's quiz <laughs> that he ran last week. Right. Someone described it as the best quiz we have ever had on the podcast so no pressure or anything but you know it was a it was a good quiz from paul i must admit it, it was yeah. yeah i mean for someone who fails spectacularly at the quizzes every single time he's on the podcast he's a pretty good host yeah he knows how to host a quiz he doesn't know how to compete in one yeah it was uh tom barwick by the way at tommy come lately on twitter so thanks for your message tom um but uh, yeah, no, no pull this week. Steve is back in the armchair. I'm back in the host's chair. Uh, so first up then, in the film Homeward Bound, who voiced the dog Chance? Was it A, Charlie Sheen, B, Corey Haim, or C, Michael J. Fox? Oof. Uh, it, uh, I think I know that it's Michael J. Fox. And I think it was. And Callum? I'll say Corey Haim. Okay. And secondly, in the Rugrats movie, who voiced the dog Spike? Was it Sylvester Stallone, Steven Seagal, or Bruce Willis? Bruce Willis. Mm, he does a lot of voiceover stuff, doesn't he? And lots of uh, animals and things like that. I think, yeah, Bruce Willis as well. Okay. Is there a question uh, on who voices um, Reptile in that movie? Because I can tell you that off about. No, but I did. Re- it's Buster Rhymes. Yeah, isn't Buster it? Rhymes. <laughs> yeah. 
amazing. I think that came yeah. out like I think that came out like a year after his working on the Space Jam soundtrack as well. So <laughs> that song is actually great, by the way. That uh, Monstars anthem. I'm not joking. Uh, who? This was probably the easiest one of the five. In the Lion King, who voiced Scar? Was it A. Alan Rickman, B. James L. Jones, or C. Jeremy Irons? Rickman. I don't know. Can a man not marry his son? It's Jeremy Irons. I didn't say it's Jeremy Irons. <laughs> I thought you were just generally asking. No, me. no, no. That, uh, it, it, it's, it's a lot. It's half of a friend. Sorry, I'll, expl- I'll, explain, I'll explain in a podcast break, but might never get added as a stinger. Okay. <laughs> okay. Another probably quite easy one here. In Finding Nemo, who voiced Dory? Was it A, Oprah Winfrey, B, Ellen DeGeneres, or C, Kelly Ripper? Ellen? Is that is Alan the generous? Okay, and the it's final so question then for this round Doctor Doolittle, the Eddie Murphy version of Doctor Doolittle. Who voiced Rodney the Guinea Pig? Was it A. Chris Rock, B. Dave Chappelle, or C. Eddie Murphy himself? <laughs> oh, I can't see Dave Chappelle doing it. Uh, uh, it's got to be Eddie Murphy, surely. Yeah, I'm going to say Eddie Murphy. I keep forgetting that that had two movies and was a thing. Yeah. Wait till you hear the quiz cast that we've got coming out on Monday and Steve's question about the nutty professor. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so to, to toss up the scores then. Uh, for the first one, it was Michael J. Fox. Owen got the point there. Uh, second question, the Rugrats movie spike. It was... Bruce Willis, so both people got a point, meaning 2-1 to Owen. Uh, for the third one, Scar and the Lion King, it was Jeremy Irons, so Callum pulled it back to two all there. And the third question, you both got right, Ellen DeGeneres. The fourth question, you both got wrong. It was Chris Rock. So, so it's tied. Cur- it's currently tied, <laughs> and I've just realised I've done exactly what Owen did once. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> haven't got a tiebreaker. So what we'll do is we'll round off the quiz at the end of the podcast and I will furiously Google for something. (laughs) And you'll edit edit into the start of the podcast to make it sound seamless. Yeah. No, he won't. He'll stitch me up. (laughs) Because I mentioned him not having a a tiebreaker every time. I believe this is the second time that you've done this as well, Steve. You are now 2-1 ahead of me in not preparing tiebreakers. I don't know. That's true. That's, yeah. that's hubris there, Steve. Making fun of somebody and then not actually bothering to prep yourself. That's hubris. Yes. Yep. Yes. <laughs> it won't be the first time or the last time I suffer from it. <laughs> anyway, on to the news. And there is going to be a live-action Pokemon movie. Well, yes. Um, it's been reported that uh, the rights are up for somebody to take it as a... a a sort of franchise of movies or just a series of sequels or whatever they want to do with it. Um, So at the minute, it's according to an article on denofgeek.com, the likes of Legendary Entertainment, Warner Brothers and Sony are all in the running. So first of all, should we establish we all sort of grew up watching Pokemon? Is that right? No, not really. Definitely grew up playing Pokemon. I can't remember watching much of it. Certainly played a fair bit of Pokemon Blue and Pokemon Red. Mm. And there's one on the N64 that was quite good as well. I can't remember what it's called. It's Pokemon something. Like Stadium or something, was it? 
Something like what that. do you mean the photography one? You go around taking pictures. Oh of the no, I wouldn't have played that. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I get like terribly addicted to Pokemon games. Even now, I still like occasionally reach for them and sink. Like I think it, the Pokemon, the last Pokemon I played was Pokemon Y, and I sunk about two hundred hours into it. And I don't know how or why, and I will never get that time back. But it's it's just I think part of it is nostalgia because I did grow up like when the Pokemon cartoon came out over here. I think I was about eleven, so I was still kind of watching lots of cartoons, but hadn't quite progressed to being a bit more mature than Pokemon, and I loved it. Yeah, I used to play computer games all the time. I imported a copy of Pokemon Blue so I could play it two months before it came out in the UK. And yeah, I mean, it's just part of my uh, youth. So I've got this nostalgic draw towards Pokemon. However, I have absolutely no interest in seeing a live action version of the film. Who the fuck wants this movie? A lot, a lot of people are going to want this. It's going to make a shitload of money. It's, it's basically going to print. I'm amazed it doesn't exist already, quite frankly. It will print money. So yeah, I can see why Life Free Studios is on a secret bidding war for it right now. Oh, I can think of now when like my hips face secret bidding war involved. This is happening in twenty four season three, where they just have like where they bid over an evil virus. So that's like people in British suits looking at pieces of paper randomly. Just <laughs> oh, very hush hush. But yeah, no, it's uh, between Sony, Warner Brothers, who of course have a leg up on the fact that they distributed a lot of the um, original movie, like animated movies yeah, in the there's West. Like and, nine or ten of them or something like that. Yeah, and um, apparently also Legendary Pictures are running, but that has a slight sign. In fact, that Legendary are co-owned by um, a Chinese company, and China and Japan are not on great mm. terms entertainment-wise recently. So it, it's it's okay. Whoever does get this is basically getting a license to print money. It's just a shame that the big front runners are two companies that are desperately running, attempting to run straight for the bottom right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, live. I mean, computer game adaptations generally are pretty shit, anyway, aren't they? I mean, there aren't many that you can sort of single out as being better than. I, just I, 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 hey, hey, come on, come on! Are you trying to denounce the Need for Speed movie as something other than the greatest of cinematic art? <laughs> Uh, I may be insinuating something along those I, lines. I don't know about you guys, okay? But the Double Dragon movie was one of the best films of the 1920s. <laughs> Double Dragon, fuck me. Oh, God. Oh, sorry, See, am, am I giving you flashbacks now? Like, traumatic Nam flashbacks? To the Yeah, to the, the film and the computer game as well. Back <laughs> to the computer game. That was solid. I never mentioned that. Anyway, um, we've also got in the news some other items. So, enough about Pokemon, I think. <laughs> wow. We have got the first image of Scarlett Johansson in the Ghost in the Shell adaptation. Mm. Um, I've not seen Ghost in the Shell, um, so I will let you two kick off about this. <laughs> One of the most revered, like not just like animation films or Japanese anime or manga, but like one of the most revered science fiction stories ever mm. written, committed to film, and it's getting. Of course, it's getting an American. Adaptation, a remake, they've a reboot. Tra- they've, they've been trying to do for years and years. Mm-hmm. I feel like we need to make that mention now for reasons of we'll get to that. But like, they've been trying to make this for years. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Not excited about Callum, I can tell. I mean, uh, can, like, you, like... can you really gauge much from just one kind of still image? Yes. Yes, you can. <laughs> I mean, the point is, like, what they're trying to do is give everybody a little bit of a clue as to what the film's going to be, right? Yeah. And from the looks of it, what we're getting is 
the same again. Yeah, well, really. Yeah, the 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 image we've released is basically is like almost like a straight shop shop image like from from the manga, but like with, like with all the Asian you know, like aesthetics and iconography and that there inherent of the in the Ghost of Michelle story like the Japanese were, but with a white woman in the place of the Asian Matoko Kusanagi. And that's why everybody's kicking off mm-hmm. because again, it, this is the worst case scenario. Where like, if you're gonna do an American Ghost of Michelle movie, um, and you shouldn't for reasons I'll, I'll explain in a minute here. Like if you're gonna do it, tear up and you have to cast white people in it. Tear up everything, like like everything. Tear up the whole thing. Go completely crazy. Make a fully American version, but in name only Ghost of Michelle. Okay, like that's a better scenario here than essentially just. Stealing, like essentially, just taking the Asian iconography, the Japanese iconography map there from the original thing, but just replacing all the Japanese people with white people. Because again, this lead cast, with the exception of Takeshi Kitano, is all white, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the problem is, um, and the, the um, these aren't observations that have been made by me. This is from a uh, Japanese uh, uh, information guy called Jong and Sui on Twitter. Um, so credit to him here. Is that the Ghost of Michelle is? so inextricably linked to japan and japanese culture and japanese history uh, like the manga debuted in 1989 the, the anime the first anime movie the first adaptation of it debuted in 1995 this is at a time when japan was um at the lead, like a, 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 the world's leader in technology like like that, the technological hub phones televisions video game consoles music players computers every, everything's basically coming from japan japan was the center of technology and this was huge because of course a barely 50 years earlier from that it had been forcibly disarmed by um, the united states after world war ii so what had been like you know, this uh, a big country on the cusp of becoming a huge like power player in um the like in the eastern areas of the world um had been forcibly disarmed and essentially rebuilt its power by investing its money into its own economy and building itself back up that way with its tech to become, again, you know, one of the big hubs of the world. So Japan, in, um, like in the late 80s and the early 90s, have this very inextricable link with technology and the progress of technology and the relationship with technology. So, and that's, and that's not something you can get by moving it to America, by moving it to any other country. Because Ghost of the Shell is explicitly about technology and then also mm-hmm. cybernetics and philosophical debates about souls and a lot of eastern philosophy in that in there as well so if you move it away from japan and move it to say i don't know san francisco you're not telling a ghost in michelle story because it's so inextricably linked to japan the same way that kira is so linked to japan yeah. both in terms of technology and also specifically about um it react, Japan reacting to the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombings from World War Two as well. Well, I was about to make the same point for the Godzilla remake, which was just hollow because it yeah. had no, no um, like purpose or meaning. It was taken completely at face value. Yeah, a Godzilla film with a bit of like tangibly linked to the point of the original. This, I imagine, I mean, it's perhaps unfair to criticise it until I've seen it, mm. um, but I can't see for exactly the reasons you've just listed how it's going to have any relevance yeah. point yeah. to it. And, and something worse as well is that um, reports got out in this past week as well that um, initially about Scarlett Johansson, but Paramount eventually denying that and instead saying it was on a background extra instead. But Paramount, the studio um, responsible for movie along with DreamWorks, ordered visual effects tests on a background extra to shift their ethnicity from white to Asian. Wow. They immediately cancelled this as soon as they looked at the results. But fucking hell! They should just do um, 
what the uh, Wachowski siblings did in uh, Cloud Atlas. God. Makeup. Just, That's what you I need. Don't, I don't like. How the, I have to sorry, like quoting Jack, my friend Jackson here, my bad. This is like a fucking thick of it episode, but for Hollywood, like how the <laughs> fuck do you like best case scenario? It like worst case scenario is you take it, you go through with it, everybody sees it immediately and calls you out on your bullshit. Worst mm. like other case scenario is you do it, you scrap it, but then it's gonna get leaked out anyway. That you tried it, you fucking pillocks. <laughs> like and that's why the issue for Scarlett Johansson casting comes in as well is the fact of. Again, Hollywood's insistence on not being able, like, on not casting minorities, including Asians, who are somehow even less represented in movies than black people are. Which, um, Max Landis, whose name just now is, like, poison to me every time I have to say his name, jumped in to blame that it's not the movie's fault, it's the studio's fault, it's the studio system's fault, for the fact that a movie like Ghost of Michelle can only exist if you have star power behind it, and in terms of female leads, the only real big money making female leads are a very short list and they're all white so it's either you get a ghost of michelle movie with scott johansson or you get nothing the problem that, doesn't that pro- put you in doesn't that put you in like a bit of a vicious cycle because if yeah you exactly if you don't yeah. take the chance of casting a, a minority uh actor or actress in a role then they won't get recognized and everyone oh they're really yeah. good right we'll cast them in something else so if you just keep the same yeah. circle of of people exactly exactly that's the problem here like that's why when landis says it as if it's a way of like to explain away or when ridley scott goes off you know with his exodus and says oh i can't go to a studio and make a 200 million dollar movie saying it's starring muhammad such and such from so and so direct quote from him by the way there um like it's it's sure it might be how things are but it fucking shouldn't be especially not when essentially you get white guys all the time pushed into these roles to try to make stars like Chris Pratt, for example, like not a knock against Chris Pratt here, but would Chris Pratt be a big, like, A-list movie star if James Gunn and Marvel didn't take the chance and put him in the lead role of Guardians of the Galaxy? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know, but he did, and he killed it, and now he is. Like, you have to make stars. You can't just shoot them down after one go, otherwise Kevin Costner won't be, having, won't be in fucking films anymore, would it? <laughs> um, so, like, again, it's this vicious cycle, and then... And the entire point of a Ghost of Michelle movie anyway, a live-action American Ghost of Michelle movie is a no-win situation. Because unlike with, say, comic book movies, you know, with your Spider-Mans and your Marvels and such out there, anime and manga in America is still a relatively niche market, unlike comic books. So you don't get the cachet of being able to go, oh, look, we've got a new movie in the Marvel Universe. You know, like, oh, we're going to go into Galaxy. People are done for that. The mainstream public don't really know about Ghost of Michelle, even after its huge influence in the Matrix, and films like, and incidentally, this movie is just going to be a low-budget Matrix, it's just going to be like a mid-budget Matrix poor man, basically, mm-hmm. so get ready for that in advance. Um, like, and I think in, like, America, or particularly Western culture as well, the the lingering effects of the sort of, you know, ultra-violent yeah. uh, manga and animes that came out in the sort of early 90s, late 80s, you know, uh, yeah. Violence Jack and Ninja Scroll and all those, you know, and the immediate impression people think of is, oh, well, what the fuck? It's just tentacle porn. It's not violence or boobs or tentacle porn out there, which of course it's not, but that was the problem. Again, exactly. like that Dark Age image perception. Yeah, like that Dark Ages comics thing where people were desperate to make them take it seriously and just shoved any old adult shit. Yeah. In yeah. Case, like, so like the general public are only going to care if the movie looks good, which I guarantee you it won't, not just because the whole point is, but also, um, Directed by Rupert Sanders of Snow White and the Huntsman, a movie that was two hours long and quite possibly the single most boring movie I've seen in absolutely forever. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I sat down to watch that film um, and was barely focused on it for like 25% of like a quarter of the movie. And I kept giving the time left and it somehow 
kept passing so slowly. Like, it's two hours long. I felt like I was there for free. Anyways, like, so the Jump Over Manga Cafe looks good. Meanwhile, the anime community and the manga community and the Ghost of Michelle fans are going to look at this and just constantly see themselves being spat upon. And mm. they will rebel and they will get angry and they won't go and see it. Of all, like, that's the thing. But, it, you know, pissing off fanboys is not a reason to not make a film. Yeah, but, like, here's... It's, it's the same... Like, the last time... Like... The last time that a niche property with basically no mainstream like cachet was adapted and changed everything about the original property to try and make it more mainstream came out. It was the Gem and the Holograms movie. And the general public didn't go and see it because they looked at that trailer and it was fucking garbage and knew it was going to be fucking garbage and stayed away. And the fans didn't go see it because they saw themselves being personally insulted at every single turn and didn't go see it. And then the movie bombed horrifically. One of the worst openings ever was yanked out of theaters after less than two weeks and nobody and nobody has heard about it or will ever hear about it again. So it's not a, it, it's not going to work. So I don't know why pe- this movie seems to only exist right now because like, like as if somebody picked it up, like some studio picked it up after the Matrix was a huge thing. Going to be like, yeah, we're going to make all the bank off of this here. And then just kind of left it sitting around for years and years and years. And then suddenly dug it out from under the sofa one day. and was like, oh, yeah, we should probably use this. And so now it's happening. The bright side about all this talk, though, is that, is that I'm now fi- is that I'm finally got an inkling to watch the second season of Standalone Complex again. Like, finally. So every cloud and all that. Uh, our final bit of news is in America, AMC Cinema Chain uh, said that they were going to openly allow texting in their cinemas until everyone went, hang on, what are you doing? That's stupid. And now they've said, no, they're not going to allow it. They've completely backtracked. They've moonwalked so fast, they went through the wall behind them. Yeah, in the agenda that we sent out before the podcast, I said that they're gonna, uh, that they started to allow texting on mobile phones but callum that's incorrect right because yeah they've just been doing it forever yeah they just not like, yeah it's, it's recently not recently announced it's fine yeah yeah it's not again I, I've, i have it on 40 for many people in america but um it's not that they were now a lot suddenly just going to allow texting it's the fact they were going to promote being able to do it um apparently you could text in cinemas and amc and, and nobody like and ushers wouldn't come and stop you or anything so basically if i was in an amc cinema before this week and I saw someone texting. I went out to this what member of staff. Someone texting there, go and sort it out. They'd be like, "No, it's all right." Pro- prob- probably, probably. Yeah. I think uh, in the same way, like if you try to do it in a like in a British cinema here, out there where people just use their phones and nothing happens. Um, there's also the fact, as well, that the comments for the reason that um, like the the guy at AMC <laughs> did it gave the excuse that um, apparently 15 year olds just can't bear to be about their phones for more than two hours nowadays. So you need so. Um, like, in order to convince them to come to the cinema, why not just let them be able to use their phones like a complete imbecilic fucking twit he yeah, is? Just tell them to go fuck off and do something else. Yeah, I don't... I, it, I, I never understand why people check their phones in a cinema. If it's to check the time, you do know there are these things called wristwatches you can buy and put online. <laughs> it's, they're, they're even easier, and they don't chew into your battery life every time you turn yeah, them on or not. You can even get watches that answer your phone now, so it's, oh, it's a no-win yeah. situation. Yeah, like I, I was in I in the sky this week, like this week, um, and I could see a woman constantly checking her phone out the corner of my eye. Um, I was in Midnight Special the other week with my friend Lucy out there, and directly in front of us, there was somebody who's constantly checking their phone all the time, like blaring with light pollution everywhere. Um, and just I don't I I really do not just, get people. I don't it, get people who talk just, in cinemas. I don't get people who use phones in cinemas. I don't get people who buy fucking hot dogs at the cinema or nachos. And just I don't I don't get. I think the thing the trick is. If there's somebody sat in front of you or near you that's that engrossed in their phone that they don't pay attention to the film, just when kind of 
there's actually nothing happening. And people just sort of go, what? <laughs> and then they'll just sort of look at, what have I missed? What have I missed? I don't, I don't understand why you spend that much money and just not and just actively go out of your way to not no, watch a film it's, or it's... turn yourself out way. Especially since, again, if it's that case of trying to get people back into the cinema, you can maybe start with lowering ticket prices, mm. lowering concession prices, going out of your way to make cinema viewing a better experience and not in that fucking 4DX rollercoaster bullshit way, like actively trying to improve the act of sitting down on a cinema screen and watching a movie with other people around you and just... Well, I've... Yeah. You just reminded me of something. Like, this is a bit of a tangent. I cancelled... I, I used to have an unlimited card for me, and I used to pay for the unlimited card for my wife as well. She never really goes to the cinema anymore. It was a bit of a waste of money. <laughs> so I cancelled her card, mm. and uh, that was that expired at the middle of March, end of March, I think, was when we cancelled it. Still works. <laughs> Went to see... Um, Tar, uh, I think he said Tarzan, man. Jungle Book at the weekend using her card. Kitching, take I that. See, gonna, Sticking it to the man. Are you going to try and book him for the green room screen, screening with it as well? Then? All of them. All, all, of them. All, all the screenings, all the time. All the screenings, every single one. <laughs> yeah. I think I think I might have mentioned this last week, um, but there's a cinema near me in in a town called Dorchester for any Dorset-based uh, failed critics listeners called The Plaza, and it's £2.50 see a film during the week and three pound fifty at the weekend. Nice. It's brilliant. And there's no and catch. I'm waiting for the catch. No, there's no catch. There's only four screens, um, but there's about there's at least eighty seats in each screen. Uh, all the snacks are about half the price of what they are at a normal cinema chain. And it's bloody brilliant. Mm. There's no Do you have to pay to park? Yes. But mm. not it's not a cinema car park. It's just um, well, I suppose yeah. you could... It's not worth me going then. It's not worth well, me no. travelling down. No, yeah. no. It'd be completely pointless anyone more than an hour away, well, <laughs> half an hour away going. It'd be a complete waste of time for them. But for me, it's great. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, with regards to the people using their phones in the cinema, so what is the cut-off point for you where no phones? Because I think I'm happy for people to use their phones up until the trailers start. I think usually if they're a big skinhead and look like they'd batter me, then I don't say anything. Otherwise, I tell them to turn it off or pull it away or shut up. But at what, or... at what point? Like, the, I mean, obviously... Any, like, as soon as the film's starting. Yeah, so, like, yeah. so the ad... Would, do you, are you okay with people using their phones while the 27th in a row... Or is that a no-no? No, just no. I mean, like... The uh, the adverts are fine. I don't care. I you you know I play on my phone during the adverts, the trailers. I if there's a lot of people around me, I'll pull it away. If I'm just there on my own, then I don't you know there's hardly anyone else in the cinema. I don't give a fuck. I'll just keep messing about on my phone. But as soon as the film's on, you put it away. You shut up. That's what, Them's the that's rules. What I mean, as soon as the film starts, yes, definitely. But I didn't know how bothered people were in the run up to the film actually starting. Yeah, no B- BBFC card for me. Like, because uh, like, cause adverts are the absolute worst, and trailers, trailers are bad, mostly. So, uh, like, like, uh, like, if you actively try and avoid trailers, and you're like you're using music or whatever that bears, or trying out that bear, then that's fine. It's um, again, like, but when the tar- car comes up, you turn it off, you sit down, and you watch the movie you actively paid money and got dressed to go see. And got dressed. That is the crucial thing, you know. Because not they don't always get dressed, do they, Steve? Yeah. When they sit next to you. Wow! I oh, know it was Paul, wasn't it? The guy who came into the cinema and just took his shirt off. Yeah, I had, I had an absolute like this was one where it was quiet in the day. I've told this story before. It was quiet in the middle of the day to go and see a film, and they sort of said, "Yeah, just sit anywhere you like, really." Uh, and some complete stranger come and sat right next to me and had like 
stinking cinema nachos, which are crunchy by the nature of a nacho, so it's loud, (laughs) and it was also stinking nacho cheese and jalapenos. (laughs) But why have you chose to sat next to You could sit anywhere else. There's about 20 people in this. Why have you sat right next to me? Perhaps he was, well, with the shirt coming off, I'm going to assume he was trying to cruise you and you just blocked him out. That that was Paul, so that wasn't, I didn't have to deal with that. (laughs) But there's, yeah, I just, I don't get people. I don't, I don't either. Just hate the general public. Humans are overrated. We're not. Yeah. We're not. We're not all that. No, we're not. Um, oh, one little bit of news I've just found um, before we move on here: the Iron Giant is finally coming to Blu-ray in September. Um, nice. Yeah, the Iron Giant signature edition coming out. Um, in, I mean, in America, but um, it's going to be tough fifteen dollars. So that's an easy import, and you get two versions of the film plus um, a documentary and art cards uh, and a little four-inch articulated Iron Giant statue as well. Plus, Has it had its um, cinema run again? Uh, yeah, that, yeah. That was, was that in, big uh, or was it coming? Or? Yeah, no, no. It was in February. Um, same weekend yeah. as Deadpool, I believe. So. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So, I, so I got, no I got, one watched it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, it, it also came out basically fucking any, basically fuck all nowhere and was only like in Cineworld at like first thing in morning. It was a kids AM thing. But I got up and I watched my Iron Giant on the big screen <laughs> and I cried because he is not a gun, damn it. Superman, yeah. Still best it, Superman yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so part two then and what we've been watching when we take a look at non-new releases we've seen in the last week uh, owen why don't you start us off here because of batman versus superman i've seen a lot of people lately talking about their favorite batman film and, you know, their favourite on-screen Bruce Wayne or, you know, even the fucking... The, there was an argument I saw on a forum about people um, picking their favourite Batmobile. So, fuck it. I, you know, I, and also because I've recently reread writer Grant Morrison's run on the Batman comics, I thought I'd revisit a film featuring uh, the Caped Crusader that I've always liked and held aloft, despite, you know, some people seemingly not liking it so much or not enjoying it at, at all you know mainly with the they trot out the argument of <clears throat> it's not batman um whatever but you know the film i'm going to talk about is batman returns tim burton's batman returns years ago i reviewed this on the podcast do you remember that steve what that was um no we were picking our favorite christmas films and i said if you guys can have die hard i can pick batman returns uh, Does that ring a bell? Yes, because I probably disagreed and said Batman Returns is a is a film set at Christmas. Die Hard is a Christmas film because it's about a man trying to get home for his, to his family at Christmas. That was your exact reasoning. Yeah. yeah. But I wasn't having any of it. I'm, I still think it's a, a Christmas film. I think of it as, you know, it's all set at Christmas. It's all very Christmassy. That's enough for me. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so I watched, I last watched Batman Returns actually in 2010, I think. Um, pretty much straight after watching or re-watching Burton's previous Batman film. And I felt quite strongly then that the sequel was a better film. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I like the 1989 movie. Uh, Nicholson, I think, gets more screen time than Keaton in that. Uh, but I'm not complaining because he's fucking brilliant in it. But both It and Returns are heavily influenced by the darker tone of the Batman comics at the time. Such as, um, you know, The Dark Knight Returns and uh, The Killing Joke, 
which were like phenomenal hits, unprecedented hits for DC. And which is and, and Killing Joke, of which is finally coming to blue, is getting an animated version. In a it days. is an R-rated animated version, from what I hear mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, and really, I mean, I know Tim Burton doesn't read nor ever will read superhero comics, as he famously, uh, as famously was pointed out by Kevin Smith. Um, but teaming Burton with this, you know, then fresh, interesting and different gothic tone with the uh, late 80s Batman revival seemed to make perfect sense, right? And yeah, I've always felt that Returns just... I, th- I think it did nail the tone. I think the original was a bit wavering. I think Returns got it more when I, you know, last watched it. You know, where the original was kind of transitional because comic book movies were still being treated with a degree of trepidation back then. You know, you've got Superman 4 and Incredible Hulk TV films and Howard the Duck. They don't exactly scream money-making industry like they do today. And plus to many, Batman was still thought of as Adam West running around in blue tights with eyebrows drawn onto his mask. So, you know, I, I do remember Returns being a more confident and bolder and a more mature film than uh, even its predecessor, never mind the kind of films that were out at the time. It's actually just a really, really, really camp and often goofy film, it turns out. Like, really comically over-the-top cartoonish. Um, the gothic ref- uh, presentation of Batman, of Gotham of his rogues gallery is pretty one-dimensional. There's not much there beyond style. Um, Danny DeVito just fucking batters the shit out of the scenery, never mind choose it, as a short, squat, sewer-dwelling penguin with his uh, midgets, dwarves. I don't know what's the correct term anymore. Um, In emperor penguin costumes, convening in the city centre to fire missiles at things. I mean, fuck me, Christopher Walken is the forgotten man of these two movies because he's it's prominent in just about every scene in Batman Returns with his sort of two-tone suits and his wacky haircut and it's it's all just a bit try hard um I liked Keaton you know whether burning criminals to death or trying to find the best way to get rid of a bomb which is incidentally down the front of a goon's trousers it's still pretty good it's still ace as as Batman as Bruce Wayne but Batman is just a fucking bargain basement copy of the character in this. He's pointless. He brings absolutely nothing to the film except his name. There's literally no reason that you would call Batman in this film if you were in trouble. There's just no reason at all. He turns up, he punches a few clowns who are cartwheeling around the city, smashing some shop windows, and that's about it. You know, Bruce Wayne seems to research the evil, scheming, secret plans of Christopher Walken and Danny DeVito by using all of his guile and cunning to turn the TV news on at the correct time of day. And there's nothing really in this film to suggest Batman has any purpose at all other than to give the bad guys a distraction. But I guess that there are layers to the story that I've not really picked up on so much before, or at least never perhaps noticed how much effort had been put into the, the construction of them, which is the story of Selina Kyle, or Catwoman. Because the film is actually, when you look at it like a bit more deeply beyond Tim Burton's sort of gloss... It's kind of about the glass ceiling, you know. Walken, Christopher Walken plays Max Shrek and he's just like a pompous arsehole of a boss. Um, it's not his biggest crime, admittedly, as he plans to take over Gotham City by monopolising its energy supply. But even that is just, I mean, fuck me, it's half-baked. And, um, yeah, his strongest aspect is definitely in how it has this, like, undervalued, 
overworked, frustrated secretary who just gets laughed at, abused and shit on for being a woman. And then Selena goes from this anxious, nervous bundle of blonde hair to um, like an empowered cat woman. And I think the PVC bondage-esque suit is clearly done on purpose because she kind of controls the people in this film with her sexuality. And it kind of, you know, Penguin, Batman, Shrek, they're all frightened of her because the tables have flipped. And it's not because she's like quite sexy. It's because, you know, the woman who they've all looked down on is now looking down on them and it's frightening to them as people. And she's in control. It's a great turning point in the film. It's about the only thing that's true to the comics so far as her character goes as well. But, you know, regardless, it's a really well-written and performed movie character, I think. Also, um, the scene where her and Bruce Wayne are dancing together, where Selina reveals she's sort of planning to shoot Max Shrek. And then they spy the mistletoe and instantly kind of recognise each other's secret identity. Um, it adds another layer of complexity to their relationship. And it's probably the best scene in the entire two films, I think. Maybe. I'd have to rewatch Batman again, but I'm pretty sure it was the best scene in this film by a distance. And I was trying to think what else I've seen Michelle Pfeiffer in. Or that she's done besides, you know, Scarface and Batman Returns. And I was drawing a blank, which is odd. Because she's really great in this. And it's odd that her career didn't skyrocket afterwards. But, you know, two great performances in your career is probably better than 99% of all other actors in the world. So I guess it'd be a bit uh, unfair to complain. But, you know, anyway, overall, it's not it's not really as good as I remember it being. But it's, it is still kind of fun in a way. Um, and at least now I don't have to question myself anymore. And I can say with absolute certainty that Edward is by far and away the best thing Tim Burton has put his name to. Not Edward and maybe Batman Returns, just Edward. Just Edward, undoubtedly Edward. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the next film he's got coming out? Hasn't he got an Alice in Wonderland scene? No, he's, produ- he's, he's only producing that. Yeah, that one's not done being it. done by James Bobin of Flight of Concords and Muppets Most Wanted. Yeah, the trailer oh, just. What is, with a the, series of... what is with the dubstep version of White Rabbit? <laughs> I know, I know. Like, it's... like that. That was like that's a weird trailer. Like, I first sat down. What, like, it started off. I was like, oh, we're going to do Sucker Punch, but less exploitatively. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's fine. And then suddenly, White Rabbit comes up. Like, oh, so we're gonna play a song about a drug trip that uses Alice in Wonderland as a metaphor. So, okay, Disney, sure. And then I could hear like the phone on orchestral strings in time. I'm like, oh god, no, no, no. And then after Sasha Baron Cohen, and then oh, remember, yeah. like, no. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think we're. Grace we're Slick is powerful enough on her own, you dipshits. <laughs> and Callum, what have you seen? Uh, I've seen a lot, but uh, <laughs> in, instead, I'm going to devote my time here to getting it on Audible Record. But I have seen Francis Ha finally, and that I have opinions on Francis Ha, um, which is a Noah Baumbach movie from 2013. Uh, start. Um, written by Greg. Greta Gerwig with Baumbach. And prior to watching Fantasy Art, I had seen only two Noah Baumbach movies, um, which were both ones he made last year. Uh, While We're Young, which I felt was very good for the first half, and then completely collapsed in the second half when it revealed itself to be Old Man Ranting at Cloud. Uh, <laughs> and I, I fucking hate that final shot. Like when Ben Stiller and Naomi like Naomi Watts are staying back at the baby playing with an iPhone, it's meant to be like, look at the kids with the technologies of the screens of the bloody bloody bloop. 
Um, I'm like, fuck off, Bombac. Um, <laughs> and Mistress America, which I found to be absolutely insufferable. Um, like, I, I wanted to like Mistress America, I really did, but I just found it to be insufferable with an utterly hateful cast that the film seemed to be completely unaware of just how terrible its cast was and how unreal it, their, like their bond, you know, that female friendship bond was supposed to be. And so ended up like being so in love with its cast that it, ended, like, that it was just fully insufferable to have to be with them as revered these utterly horrible people, which would be fine if the movie were funny and had jokes and it has neither. Um, so even though it was only 84 minutes, it felt so much longer. Um, so when I asked you before we started recording what your opinion of Francis Hart was, and you, you wouldn't tell me, you, this is a surprise and I'm looking forward to finding out, but I think you've just revealed how yeah, I like, imagine yeah, you're going like, to be Francis yeah, Hart. Like, I, like I even put Noah Baumbach in my awards of last year under I don't get it. Like my I don't get it. Well, like I like I didn't get Baumbach, and I basically was prepared to write him off as as smart people comedy, which is a term my friend Lucy Mir on screen one coin, which is for comedies that aren't funny but are for people who like to sit there and go like, oh, more oh, yes, that was quite funny, yes, like full, <laughs> full of themselves way. Yeah. But I always give people. But there's a free strikes rule for a reason. Like in in life, there's a free strikes rule. So I was I was going to try Francis Ha both on the pushings of uh, main set friend, c- critic friend Kyle Turner, and also because my friends, uh, a couple of my friends at university love it to death. So I watched it. And I love it. Really? I, I, I love, like, Francis Hart is basically, for me, is the anti-Mistress America. Like, it's basically everything Mistress America isn't for me. Like, um, like it, it's got character, like, it's got um, characters that um, happen to are, on the right side of the flawed and massively irritating debate, um, with a bond with a bond between like its two leads, Francis and Sophie, which are Greta Gerwig and Mickey Sumner, that feels genuine and real, with like actual from our hearts. It's basically a love story, but between friends, and also from uh, and a love story that's also slowly breaking apart at the seams as the film goes on. Like it's like I mean, I just stay on the correct side of flawed instead of pushing over into um irritating um like the film loves its cast understandably loves its cast like loves the bond that um francis and sophie share but um also has self-awareness about their worst their worst aspects and their worst flaws like when francis is at the dinner table um essentially shit talking sophie after they've had an argument for um basically no reason as well like even the film like even as she sort of realized it but keeps doing it anyway um the film itself is also actively funny like actually funny with lots of genuine jokes and funny scenarios about phone in there and Mistress America where basically racist caricatures happened. Um, and, and again, and it's real. And again, the relationship between Francis and Sophie is very real. Like it feels real. It feels, uh, it reminds me a lot of friendships that I've seen um, other people have at university um, in a way that again, what... oh, that was the saddest sentence I think I've ever heard. <laughs> No, I've seen other, so I've seen other people have. Yeah, I know, I know. That's my life in a nutshell. There, but um, like, but in a way, like, in a way that's convincing, and therefore is like so painful to watch in a good way. Like, as it essentially like breaks down over the course of the film. Um, I like and like the, the France trip, but like the Paris trip alone, like where Francis is like just decides she's going to go to Paris for two days, and then. Nothing happens as Hot Chocolates, everyone's a winner, like runs on the soundtrack there. That sequence alone is enough, like, is enough to make me a, a, like a Gerwig um, Baumbach fan alone. Just for that way of like insisting of like, I'm going to go do something in my life. And then 
as precisely nothing happens whilst you're there and then everything happens whilst you're away or as you're heading back and as the song and as it drags on as the song slowly starts to become more mocking as it goes on that it's a fan, that's a fantastic sequence and the um final conversation between Francis and Sophie like in um, the dorm at the end of the movie is just heartbreaking in this really beautiful understated way um i yeah, it, it get, for me, it's basically everything that um, fan, that um, Mistress America wasn't. That there. It's just a brilliant, brilliant film and a wonderful little love story. And yeah, I again, I, I love it to death, which surprised me because I was actually expecting to go in fully just hating its guts. So maybe 2015 was just an off year for Bond back. Maybe mm. I don't know. I, I'm I'm now willing to give him more chances essentially uh, because fan, because I found Fantas Hard to be that good. And also he wow. scripted, and also he scripted Madagascar Three, which was hilarious. So, yeah, I'm very surprised you're a pig, Francis. Huh? I really, I'm quite shocked because uh, I was expecting you to be of a similar opinion to me and find them all incredibly insult and hate film, but think it's objectively quite good. I didn't. I mean, to me, Francis Har is just you know, Pulp Fiction's Common People, the film. <laughs> so, you know, it's just people pretending to be poor and, you know, crap at life, but really, if they wanted to, they, they wouldn't be, you know. Yeah. It's just that, that's the, the, the kind of yeah. impression I got of it. It's the only person in the film I thought was genuine. The only person who was Francis. She was the only person who um, was kind of sincere and um, she was a twat, hmm. a, a, an obnoxious, annoying twat. But I think she was kind of aware of who she was, whereas everyone else in the film was not. So she was a twat, but not pretending to be a different kind of twat to the twat she was. Which itself, That's which the... itself is kind of why the, it is it, actually sort of why the film works. Like the film being like the characters are some are either aware or unaware of exactly hmm. how stupid they are, but the film itself seems to demonstrate an awareness of how ridiculous like of how ridiculous and um like emotionally stunted each mm. people here are and i think that's the difference like between mistress america and Francis heart is that france is a again like both films have characters that are either aware or not aware of themselves but the, but whereas mistress america is complete is simultaneously unaware of how terrible all of its cast is and ha- just how awful all of its cast is there. Francis Ha has that self-awareness to, um, to counterbalance with the affection it does have for mm-hmm. various members of the cast. And I think that's why it works. Um, and I really like it. Although it's still not, although I must say it's, um, I prefer the usage, I prefer the usage of David Bowie's modern love in sleeping with other people. Just putting that out there. You should all go watch sleeping with other people, which is on DVD now, actually. So do that. Okay. Uh, I have watched the, for the first time, I don't know why for the first time, but I wish I hadn't, the 2014 <laughs> version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles starring Megan Fox um, and Johnny Knoxville as the voice of Leonardo. Go and, Ninja, go Ninja, go. Go I, Ninja, go Ninja, <laughs> go. Yeah, I, I turned it off about halfway through. That's how bad it was. It is just absolute. I, I, it's really bad, isn't it? It is. I, 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 I can't quite work out who it's aimed at. And that's partly down to Megan Fox, because you think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a kid's film, or it should be. When I was growing up, I don't know about the comics, I didn't read the comics, but the, the, the animated show and all the movies were quite kiddie, aimed at kids, I loved them. I had all the toys and everything, brilliant. This one, because every time, uh, any time Michael Bay is involved in a movie with Megan Fox, we have to sexualise her to buggery, 
Um, that's perhaps an unfortunate turn of phrase. <laughs> but, but, you know, so it makes you think, well, is this aimed at kids? Because if it's aimed at kids, what the fuck is that about? But the April O'Neil stuff is really weird because it, like, yeah. it seems like it wants to be like a deconstruction of how Bay movies usually treat Megan Fox characters. You know, like, just, you know, it's just like tits and ass basically, and that bears fan service to other people. But the, like, as evidenced by like putting all the words in Vernon's mouth for making you know, Will Arnett and making him incredibly just like creepy and awkward. But at the same time, and making a whole thing about you know like, trying to be respected as a journalist and all that stuff. But at the same time, it also will shove her in skimpy outfits and linger on her ass and put the lines in the mouth of Vern of Will Arnett, the designated comic relief character, and hang on them so that the audience can laugh at said terrible lines and that there and think of it as a joke. Like I don't get it. Is it meant to be subversive? Is it meant to be subversive? It's doing a terrible job at it. It, it kind, no, of, it kind of epitomizes the, the trailer that I've seen for the second one. Now, in, in when I went to see um, Batman vs. Superman, I think it was, and there was a trailer for this film. Or it, might a tra- it might have just been a trailer that I saw on, online or something. Anyway, so in, the, in that trailer, there's a scene where Megan Fox is, is walking somewhere in a, a blouse, a top, and then she like ties it in a knot so her midriff is showing. Then I went and saw The Jungle Book, and there was a trailer for this in that, obviously implying the film's aimed at kids. They have the same scene... But they don't cut to the bit where she ties the shirt up and shows her midriff. It just shows her walking along a, a, a place mm. in, a, in a top. And then that's it. It cuts it. So what the, I know obviously you have to tailor the trailer to the film that it's being shown before. But is this film, what, 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 are, they meant to be, what are they meant to be? PG thirteen Bay movies always like confuse me. Like in that way of like, like, like Bay himself is basically an R rated filmmaker. Like, 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 well, like, yeah. what I mean, his, his best works are anyway. It's like that R-rated movies, and yet he keeps being by the, by the shifting nature of blockbuster movies now, where they won't hand out two hundred million dollars to R-rated movies anymore because they can't guarantee a reimbursing of investment, despite you know Deadpool just happening. But um, like, like, there's that sense of like he's still trying to make those movies in PG thirteen terms, but in this way, that's obviously. It just, but it just... that strikes us half halfway house of trying to be for adults, but at the same time having to be for families and therefore kind of pleasing nobody, and it yet just, yeah, same it... and seemingly pleasing everybody because they make loads of money. It, it needs to it needs to put both feet in one camp. It obviously needs to go right. This is a kids film for kids, so we're gonna make we're gonna make a kids film about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Hero Turtles in England, because we're not allowed to use the word ninja because it scares kids or something. Or, <laughs> or they go... Not under Mary White yeah, anymore, yeah. it's fine. Or yes. we go, or they, or they go, right, what we're going to do is we're going to make a, a 15 or an 18 rated film about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and our target audience is going to be people who grew up watching it, but they're adults now, and they'll watch something where it's a bit more adult featuring the Teenage Mutant. Not, not just make, but, uh, what we're going to do, uh, make this film that... The PG thirteen applies appeals to everyone, but is actually a load of crap. But Teenage Mutant got... Ninja Turtles has never really had a solid target audience mm. because the, the you know the comic that it was based on is very violent. It was very satirical of pop culture and sort of the fact that ninjas were suddenly in everything. And the dark, uh, age, and the dark age of comics as well as that time when comic industry was going incredibly dark stupid. and a dark yeah. adult male. I, yeah, I like. So, sorry, hang on. I'm now starting. To feel, I'm starting to see parallels between that and the modern superhero movie franchise now with Warner Brothers. <laughs> it's almost like 
we might be heading for a self-imposed fall, but I don't know why. I don't know. The comics, but DC comics, I stopped reading them because they were just like, just so toned down, just watered down, dumbed down shit. But, um, Sorry, Which is kind of contrary to yeah. yeah. What was I talking about? Uh, yeah, so like they've never had a target audience. So they had like the comics, which were originally very dark, and then of course it became this huge um, kids cartoon and toy range, you know. And so mutant ninja turtles, turtles. <laughs> yeah, but the um, <clears throat> so that you know the film now whenever. They're making a, a remake. What are they remaking? I think this film tries to capture some of the original uh, comic book style, some of the way things it uh, the way it looks and um, the way the, the characters feel is slightly more in line with that original interpretation rather than the kids' film. However, I, I wholeheartedly agree it is a film made for kind of. Pre-pubescent teenage boys, you know, that's not right. Teenage boys, young teenagers, you know, 12, 13, 14, who are going to find Michelangelo's jokes funny, going to find the fact that Megan Fox is in short dresses and low tops and stuff really engaging for them. Um, But it's just frustratingly a nothing film. It's just... But by the same token, I thought some of it was... Okay, some of it was kind of fun, but it could have just been, again, like I said about the Pokemon thing earlier, just nostalgia beating me into submission. Well, I remember seeing it. I remember not being as incensed by it as the Transformers movies. And, oh, no. Well, and, also, and, not, and not being like... I think, I think more than anything else, I was just kind of bored and then also kind of bewildered at the amount of times the plot contradicted itself as it went on, as if nobody <laughs> actually looked at that script after the first draft. Mm. Or like they redrafted certain bits and just forgot to go back and change other segments. Like is it, it is the guy, is William Fickner from Prison Break actually responsible for for Megan Fox's parents' deaths or not? Can you decide, movie? Here, yeah, please. That's right. It was never really clarified, was it? It's just. I was like, bit... I was like, like Splinter specific. Like Splinter, I think it's like Splinter specifically noting it was an accident, and then William Fickner just comes out and was like, "I killed your parents." I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, that film is a bit. Yeah, I did like the bit in the lift. I shouldn't have laughed, but I did. Oh no, and no, then... no, no! You should have, because it's also like the one time the film seems to know who it's aimed at. Yeah, it was goofy, and it was just what the turtles should be. Yeah, uh, before it then just turned before the finale turned into the Amazing Spider-Man. Mm. Yeah, I just didn't. I didn't get it. Um, I just couldn't get on board. I didn't. I didn't like the characters. Uh, I did. The plot was just a fairly standard plot for a film of that type, but I, I the characters didn't I didn't warm to them. I didn't like them. I didn't care about them. Um, and yeah, I just turned it off. And I just thought this is just a for a film that I put on to kind of, while I was doing other things to just kind of be a bit of background noise and possible distraction. Even then, I turned it off, and that's just, <laughs> that's just how bad I found it. And yeah. Um, I think I might have mentioned this before we started earlier today, but Chris from uh, Wiki Shuffle, you know, good friends of the podcast. We've had them, those guys on here before, and it's always great chatting with them and being on their podcast occasionally and stuff. Um, Chris uh, saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the cinema three times, I believe. He went back and watched it again and then again. 
What an idiot. <laughs> you know, different strokes for different folks. Chris, saw your life out. Now. For our new release this week, we will be reviewing the latest adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book, which has been directed by John Favreau and stars, among others, uh, a voice cast of Bill Murray, Ben Kingsley, Idris Elba, with Peter Nyong'o and Scarlett Johansson, and Christopher Walken, um, with Neil Sethi as the character of Mowgli, uh, the only real thing in the film. Um, but saying that, with all with all the um, with all the animals, creatures, jungle being uh, CGI, um, it looks bloody fantastic. Yeah, it looks very real. I thought. <clears throat> I think. I think the one th- the things that didn't look real were the smaller animals, kind of the sm- the, the small like little porcupine and the birds and things like that. They they looked very obviously to me at least. CGI and fake, but the the bigger animals, the, the 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 big cats and the bears and the rhinos and the elephants, they looked. I thought just they looked fantastic. As did the whole jungle scenery. I've heard criticisms of the uh, movement of some of the animals that it's not quite right. I well, think the pad, something to do with the pad, like because they they probably modelled the movement on seeing animals in captivity, which are different to. Well, I was going to say, I've been to Longleat Safari Park on more than one occasion, and it, it, <laughs> it looked perfectly fine to me. Yeah, it's definitely got four legs, and it's yeah. walking on all four of them. That is yeah. animatronic. Yeah, yep. that is exactly how they walk about. Yeah. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of nitpicking with with it, really. Yeah. I think uh, mostly it looked good. It, it was believable from the way that it was, um, you know, pictured. I, I felt perhaps jarringly realistic. Um, because it, the the tone of it was mixed. I think individual bits of the film are pretty damn good. There's some bits in this film that are great. Um, when they that wasn't me doing a Tony the Tiger pun because there's a tiger in it. Oh good. Great. But the, the uh, fact that they, there, are, <laughs> there are individual bits that are that are really good, and putting them all together is like looking at a jigsaw you can see the lines in between different sections and they they fit together but you can still see there are different parts there um so for example for example the bit with baloo when he turns up is brilliant finally you get the comedy that is like desperately required in what has pretty so far been quite serious you know he's had a billow light humour in it but only in touches mostly it's taken itself far too seriously at that point not criticism again perhaps because it seems like i'm criticizing i'm not i'm saying that that is the tone they were going for i think they get it but then the blue stuff happens and that is the best bit of the film however the song that he you know the bare necessities we all know bare necessities when that is in the film it's not good there's no magic there's no not there's nothing like how it it was in the original, um, it's, the original movie. It, it's not the same as it is in the original because this is this isn't the musical. So the only two songs in this really, they do partially. But I, I thought it worked. I thought it was just a bit of fun. I, I, thought, I, I, I thought it was a nod to the original, quite fun, and it didn't detract from the film at all. 
which is but that was nice like little... it, it's it's quite fun. Yeah, it's a nice little skit in the film, but it's not the it's there for the reasons that it should be there, rather than because it feels like you know it's a good thing to put into mm. the film. There's a reason to do it, and I don't think there was. Conversely, I thought the King Louie bits were good. Christopher Walken's voice acting as King Louie was. Uh, the, the, he was the best performer, isn't it? I, I think all the voice acting was was fantastic, and they get their kind of characters spot on. Um, you kind of you you think of those voices now, the people who play them as those characters. I, I, I thought, especially Ben Kingsley, uh, Bill Murray, and Idris Elba, and Christopher Walken were just were just fantastic in their various roles. Mm-hmm. Really, really, the right voices for those roles. Um, Sometimes it's quite brave going for like all big stars for for a voice because it is different acting voice acting than it is to to not proper acting but you know acting where you're physically there and sometimes you see when these when films go for just right we're gonna have a big star in every major in every major voice for this film and it turns out that it's not actually that good but this one it worked on on you know every. Every voice, bit of voice acting was just the, the right one for the role. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you've been suspiciously quiet, Callum. No, 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 uh, no, no, no. It's like, no, it's like, like you, were, you were doing so well leading it there. I didn't want to like jump in and take, like, steal it, rest it away from you or anything. Uh, yeah, like, speak of putting on big, like, minor tangent here. Speak of taking on big uh, stars and roles. And Bandit come about to be voicing the Grinch in Illuminations Grinch movie. So, uh, look, well, forward, look forward to that, he's... folks. Benedict Cumberbatch, he's got to be in every film ever. Yeah, all the films Thrills. ever, all the time. Yeah. He's, in uh, the tw- he's in the 2018 Jungle Book, isn't he? Can't oh, Cumberbatch. oh yeah. no, 2017, but yeah, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I, 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 I can, after watching this, I can see why Warner Brothers delayed it by a full year. One want to, <laughs> want to get steamrolled by this. No, uh, no I, 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 um, I actually, I really like this movie, which is surprising me because I actually went in kind of like ambivalent. Like not like neither excited, neither dreading, just kind of oh yeah, this is happening. Mainly because like all the all prior Disney um, attempts at remaking or readapting um, films and stories they've already done haven't have been at best have been at best like millimeters away from being genuinely great, which is Maleficent. Um, so a better editing job of Maleficent will make that a, f- a phenomenal film. Um, I agree. I actually thought yeah. Maleficent was great. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's the first thirty minutes for me. Like it, like like that movie. That that movie needed to have been paced so much better. Anyways, um, and Oz the Great and the Powerful was you know mostly positives uh, for that one. Uh, it's 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 fine visually because Raimi is an outstanding visual storyteller. But uh, when it when we get to the woman scorn stuff, it's mm. anyways. Um, like and at worst, they're just god awful. Like Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. This is the first time it, I think it's genuinely worked, and it also works as a fantastic indicator as to as to um, why you need big bu- why big budget blockbusters can still be great, like and vital viewing. Um, that str- that strong characterization. And um, an outstanding visual storytelling can make up for shallowness, un- unoriginality, and an honestly badly performance. Like, because this movie looks stunning. Like, uh, like if you're listening, if you're listening right now, you should go see. And you're planning on seeing Jungle Book, go and see it on a big screen. Like, this is a, this is the kind of film you need to go and see, in, like on the big in a big cinema screen, sat down watching all the essentially like, all the money being poured in because it looks phenomenal. Like, like the look of the jungle, the designs of the animals, the designs of the animals, uh, the feel of the movie, as 
as well. Like it's not just the fact that you know, like these are all so, like so photorealistic. Pardon me, um, animals running around here created by Weta Digital and Digital Domain, you know, like a dream team of visual effects people. Uh, like that, like it's not just the fact that, they, that these are all photorealistic; it's the way that the jungle feels alive. Like for barring barring the most minor, the very most minor of details, it does not look like the entire movie was sat on a sound was shot on sound stages with basically just the kid just reacting to like sock puppets. Like it looks super real and super gorgeous to look at Volvet design and the feel of the film. And especially the feel as well. That sense of like it's not outwardly comedic for most of the time, but it's still got this sense of of like adventure, of wonderment, of discovery. But a lot of the best family films because this, mm. this is this is a, a proper form family film like yeah it's got the right amount of like uh, I, I suppose they'd call it mild peril but yeah. you know there's like scary bits in there for kids yeah. um everything with idris elba is very sinister it, idris elba's Shere khan is phenomenal like his his voice acting work is brilliant brilliantly amazing but also the way they write it like in comparison like yeah. the original and like, well not the original but like the disney animated version where he's you know affably evil and has some comedy moments here he's just this unpredictable force of terrifying nature mm-hmm. as well and got that the bit where the bit where he's um like like with um lapita nyong'o uh raksha's uh yeah, pubs yeah. and like that it's just phenomenal writing mm. and voice acting delivery um and the bit with car i was just going to throw in there as well because yeah. that is like um scarlett johansson's voice acting again you know scarlett I mean, johansson just has a voice for voice acting isn't she it? Does. I, thought, yeah. I thought she'd be in it a bit more you know just because Seeing the animated yeah. film and you know and being such a big name and the kind of biggest name female uh, actress, you know, female in mm-hmm. this film, you think she's been a bit. Well, she's not actually in it that much, but what she yeah. is in, she's she's brilliant. Yeah, she, like she's it in works one by scene. Having that small bit, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it works like that. Yeah, it's just like one scene, but you don't need any more than that because if okay. you were to just try doing it again, you basically just do what happened in the original film, which is retreading old ground. Yeah. Um, in as well. It, very interesting to see them fix the issue of the fact that Carr beforehand is basically a stand-in for sex predators. Um, here yeah. to fix that by changing <laughs> it to a woman. It's an interesting way of taking it, but hey, the scene's creepy, and we get Scarlett Johansson singing "Trust in Me" over the end credits. So I'm fine with that. I love um, I love the end credits, by the way. I it was good. Credits, it was really yeah. inventive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just really really nice and you know, just yeah. good fun and get, get, really get, well put get, together. Get, yeah, again, like classic family film. Like that, yeah. that's what again that sense of wonderment that permeates through it, and because of that, and also strong characterization. Like it, like again, these are basically they're not exactly you know, like you know deep characters or particularly original, but they've still got enough like depth and uh, and the voice cast as well bring a lot to it as well, and enough shades and that there that they feel on, like. But in addition to looking real, they also feel. Like, like real, like they, they feel like they've got lives outside mm-hmm. this movie, and they're fun, but not, but, which means that by but you know by the time we hit the end of the movie, um, like I was you know I was actually sat there, you know, my heart swelling up and nearly having tears down my cheeks, like yes, yes, you you all <laughs> rally alongside Mowgli, you know, um, like if it looks great, it sat, it it sounds great. I love the score as well, again that old school family score. But my only two problems with it are, as mentioned, the songs, which mm-hmm. again it's not that they're bad i mean although i don't like this movie's well, the version of the bare necessities that's played like where they sing because it's mm-hmm. kind of drowned out by like 700 different things and it's sung tunelessly which is meant to be kind of like wonderman but it's just kind of great on the years and it has no pur- but the problem is that um, the songs don't really have a purpose in this movie no um like, like, like as mentioned here it's that sense of like again they're here because oh it's a, it's a disney jungle book movie they're expecting the songs 
Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that. playing them over the end credits will be fine. Help, they even do play uh, one of them over the end credits as well, and it's fantastic because it fits the end credits and the film, feel film out there. But um, like Bear Necessity in the film just feels weird. It doesn't work. The orchestral reprise of Bear Necessities near the end of the movie is phenomenal. <laughs> but, it was uh, a shot. It was like when the first few bars come in, you think, hang on, is that? And yeah. then it carries on. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then, really it's, and then it swells up with a heartwarming ending and you just sit there like... Eh. Like 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 when like when um, gonna fly now comes up in Creed, you just sit there like yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And speaking of the ending, we won't really spoil it, but it's nice to see that they address the um, the unfortunate the implications. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, and Neil uh, Sethi, or Sethi, how do you pronounce it? Callum, you're usually good for these uh, things. I, I, I have a Sethi, but I'm Sethi. Okay, I'm probably he. He was pretty, pretty good, all things considered. He, you, you forget that it's a, you know, quote unquote, acting performance, and you just see him as just a, a young kid, which is good. Uh, if that's the, that's how I, it should I, be. I agree with Owen. So before Callum disagrees, with Owen, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I just think, to me, and so this might be why Callum didn't like the performance. It didn't seem to me like he was acting. It just felt like he was just having fun. Obviously, just a normal you young yeah, boy. You don't you don't want to dig a well. Callum's going to dig him out, but it's fine. You, don't <laughs> want, you don't want to dig a kid out. It's his first. It's his first big film. It's his first big performance, and he's working with stuff that isn't actually there for the whole film. Um, oh, I don't care about that. I mean, I would quite happily lay into a small kid for having a shit performance if I thought it was bad. But just laying I, into it, just laying into kids, just take, take exactly. Thanks, man. Owen, Owen Hughes likes laying into kids. Yeah, episode title. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> I just think that um, he he suited how this film was being portrayed. In a, it's not an ultra realistic portrayal because you've got talking fucking animals in there. But you know, it's it's going for that kind of vibe, and in that sense, it, he fits. He fits. But you know, maybe Callum, you're going to refute that. And no, I, it's shame, but... again, for me, the weak link is for one real thing in the film, which is Sefi. It's like 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 in fairness, um, first off we finally got an actor of actual Indian descent playing Mowgli in a jungle book <laughs> yeah. for once. Um, American Indian, granted, but still. So that's something. That's nice to see. Especially as well in a movie that cost $175 million to make. But um, I, Yeah, take I, that, Ridley Scott. Yeah, and also... And also, I, I don't know anybody. Like, like not even... Not, like, not, not just child actors, but, like, really any actor or actress who could, I think, could pro- properly work with a movie in which they're having to act alongside nothing. For the entire runtime, um, like I don't know anybody who could pull it off. That said, a bad performance is a bad performance. I think it's peak child actor. Like personally, I find like lots of all like constant mugging to the camera with huge wide eyes and lots of like yelly performances of like I am all the acting right now and I'm gonna be a serious actor in the future with all my acting ability that's gonna get me cast in everything here can you see how hard I'm acting please remember me because I'm acting I'd like to be cast in more stuff because I like acting and it's just it was like I again I found it purposely grating the rest of the film is so for me however is so strong and so well done that the performance never comes close to actually sinking it but oh, even sometimes it actually does work okay like like there are, there are, there are times where um it's more like in the dialogue scenes and the conversations about that where it feels like more acting but the the moments where it's just like you know like you know that, those moments of like discovery and such there and other bits those are the stuff that works but most of the stuff i find him acting too hard but the rest of the movie is so strong 
and so like excellent in terms of again visual storytelling and connecting emotionally in that way of the other characters the visuals and all that um that it never comes close to sinking the movie and that whilst i do think it's a bad performance it's not one that i'm dwelling on as much like afterwards instead i'm like i'm not I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be angry if I see him in a film again. Like I feel like he's got more room to go, and I'll be fine with it because the rest of the movie is so strong around him that it's not that much of a problem for me. Anyway. Yeah. Now, now, okay. now, now, now sort of... bring on all the hate comments. <laughs> I mean, Shit I can see all over a kit. See where you're coming from in the. Um, you know, I don't. I didn't get the impression though that he was trying to do that. I think, if anything, for that kind of thing, if you're annoyed by it, you should blame the director for going. Okay, now look into the camera and do a really big smile, like it's you know you really you know that's John Favreau's fault rather than than someone that young. I feel it's like the same. If I'm going to blame a director for making a kid look bad in a film, I would blame a director as well. If you know, there was a good young child performance because I don't think acting... I think for kids that age, it's much of a muchness, really, between yeah. them. It's down, really, to the direction that they get and the support that's around them. Yeah, that, um, that's what I mean. Like, I don't, I don't really know a child actor who could pull off this role, quite frankly, without outstanding directing. Anybody else... Yeah, find, yeah. Does anybody yeah. else also find it weird that John Favreau's back directing big blockbuster Hollywood movies again after his last film was basically him complaining about big Hollywood studio filmmaking? Film what, Chef? Yeah. Yeah, not Cowboys and Aliens. That didn't have yeah, any satire. No, in it. no, no, <laughs> no, chef. But, but uh, I, I, so I just continue to find this weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, or, no. maybe, or maybe he just likes, you know, getting paychecks. Being Possibly. Who doesn't? Yeah, <laughs> who doesn't? But in case, I, I still feel like he actually invest. But no, he does great work here directing movies. Like again, investing that heart, that soul, that realness. Into- it was a huge project as well. You yeah. know, all the time they got spending the green screen editing, getting it to all look right, and actually, you know make it seem some way uh like it flows properly is probably quite a challenge yeah so, yeah once, once again god this movie looks gorgeous <laughs> right uh yes that's almost it for this week's failed critics i've got a tiebreaker then we've got some recommendations so <laughs> the tiebreaker is shout out your, your name when you know the answer in 2003's the jungle book 2 who voiced Baloo? Callum. Yes, John, Callum. John Goodman. Thank you very much, Callum. Two oh, notes, Steve. Oh, Good. Jesus. <laughs> see, <laughs> if see, I, if... see, I'm sorry, Owen, you were at a disadvantage. It was in my specialist subject. Shitty director video. <laughs> and yeah. now on to, on to recommendations. I'm going with Friday night on uh, Film 4, and that is uh, it's Friday afternoon, sorry, Film 4, uh, 10 to 1, uh, around lunchtime, and that is Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Great film. Yes. <laughs> I love that film. Uh, Owen? Um, oh, my mind is also on Friday on Film 4, but at 9pm. Because I, um, a couple of weeks ago I recommended Alien. And uh, this week, 9pm Friday, Film 4 is Aliens. So, uh, the last great Aliens film. And Callum? Why do they keep trying to make Aliens films when they haven't made a good one in nearly 30 years? That's... I, lo- I do like Prometheus, but I, I don't know if I class it as an Aliens yeah. film. Oh, yeah. uh, the latest release, what about me? Um, at least in Hull, anyway, they're doing a double bill of um, Alien and Aliens uh, um, view cinemas soon as well. Are they? Yes. Um, mm. Director's cut versions, but the director's cut version of Aliens is, a defi- is the definitive version anyway. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, for me, um, on Netflix, uh, they've finally started... Ah, here we go, uh, 26th of April. The Alien double bill, at least in whole. So book yourself ready for that. 
Um, anyways, um, on Netflix, they've added a bunch of um, DreamWorks films because, you know, Netflix is basically the home of DreamWorks animation now. Um, of the good ones, or at least the, one, the excellent ones that you should watch immediately, are the first two, Kung Fu Pandas, have just been added, and also Monsters vs. Aliens, which is a criminally underrated mm. um, film that you should watch there. Also, as a heads up, uh, the Peanuts movie is out on Blu-ray and DVD on May 30th. Get your pre-orders in now, folks. Monsters vs. Aliens, it is very underrated, and it's actually got quite a lot of like really subtle but glorious nods to old B-movies. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good film. And it's also a fantastic feminist um, screed as well. So mm. that's what that's why I love it, obviously. A, a DreamWorks working with Netflix to create originals because I think they made the was it Turbo? They turned show. into a... a lot, a lot of original shows. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think second season Mr. Peabody and Sherman show just premiered as well. Um, yeah. but didn't they do How to Train Your Dragon series? Yeah, or was that something? They've, like... Yeah, they've moved that over to there now as well. Um, they've done a VeggieTales reboot, Puss and Boots TV show, the Turbo Fast series, which I rather enjoy. Uh, lots of other stuff. I need to I need to reacquaint myself with a lot of these actually in the future as well. But yeah, um yeah, there's again, that's bad. Also Monster Vs. Aliens has Stephen Colbert as the president of the United States. <laughs> uh, for those of yeah. you who want to be sold on that. So there you go. Okay, that is all for this week's Failed Credits podcast. Thanks to everyone who's listened. Website is www.failedcritics.com and me and I will be back next week with Quizcast. It's Quizcast. our birthday. Yay, fourth birthday. On Monday, uh, it will be our birthday. So the episode will be uh, released on that actual date, the 25th of April. Uh, we recorded it already, so it's just now a case of pulling my finger out and editing it. Um, but we've got teams from Black Hole Media, which was Tony and Latham. Both of them came back, reigning champions. Why wouldn't they? Um, we also had uh, myself and Carol. She was back on yesterday representing failed critics and debutants to the failed critics kind of network. I don't like calling it a network. <laughs> it sounds too grand. The kind of group of people who podcast and occasionally chat with each other uh, was Foothead Podcast, the FIFA Ultimate Team podcast, um, which was uh, Matt Lamborn, who does occasionally still come back on failed critics and writes for us every now and then. And Matt Aguilera, who debuted and was great, actually. Took to it like a duck to water. It was brilliant. So, um, And Steve, you hosted again. How, was, how did you find hosting the second Fail Critics version of the Quizcast? A right pain in the arse and a drain on my time. <laughs> yeah. Doing, so quest, doing questions for a quiz is always just a, a long, drawn-out process. So, uh, but No, it's fun, as always. What a way to sell the quiz cast. Yep. Yep. So you can check that out. That'll be, as I say, Monday the um, 25th of April. Okay. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, on Twitter at failedcritics, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash failedcritics. Thanks for listening. Callum, I want to hear about Jeremy Irons. Ah, yeah, that. Uh...
this is thanks to um, a friend of mine on Twitter, uh, Ben, Anime Dad, um, who, who kept pointing this out. Um, Jeremy Irons is against um, homosexual marriage. Is he? Um, yeah, reasoning in an interview, um, apparently that if gay people can get married, that means a man would want to marry his son. Conflating homosexuality with incest. But then, if a man can marry a woman, doesn't that mean a man would want to marry his daughter then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on, I'm gonna hang on. Let me have a look. Let me see if I can get the interview up. Uh, yeah. on... This isn't gonna be libelous if I post it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, no. He, he said he said it, so it's not libelous. If he said if he actually said it, it's not libelous. Yeah. Uh. Ah. Uh. Here. Right. Uh, I think it's Jeremy Irons discusses gay marriage. Here we go. I'll, I'll, I'll copy the. I'll, I'll uh, post the link in here for you. We can all watch it at the same time together. Jeremy Irons. Okay. Does that apply to things like gay marriage for you? I mean, the, the last week we the Supreme Court was hearing Defence of Marriage Act. Uh, you know, basically they're going to be deciding on gay marriage this same year. Same as we are in England. Yeah. I don't. How know. far does it extend? Well. You can seem squirming. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's a very interesting one, that. And, and I don't really have a strong feeling, but I see that the what we had in England, which was, uh, it was not marriage, but it was a, a, a union you could make if you were if you were gay and you Just wanted remind to you, he's an Academy Award-winning yeah, actor. Sort of has the same rights as marriage, but That's not right. the name. Same rights, not the name. And I, it seems to me that now... They're fighting for the name, and I worry that it means somehow we debase or we change what marriage is. Oh, you fucking um, I just worry about that. I mean, tax-wise is an interesting one. Tax-wise? What the fuck is he going on about? You see, just stop. Where's his agent? Could a father not marry his son? No. No, he could not. Uh, what are the laws against incest? It's not incest between it's men. It's not? Is it not? Incest is there to protect us from having... Um, uh, uh, Children with... Uh, but, but, but men and again, Academy Award winning actor, So incest wouldn't cover that. Now, if that was so, then if I wanted to pass on my estate without death duties, I could marry my son. You could... What? Pass on the, my that's the first time I've actually properly no, watched like that, and dear right God, right. it's as beautiful as I've been told it was. He sounds like he's not familiar with the concept yeah, well of, done this. of inheritance, because you don't have to marry your son to pass your, your stuff on to him. You can just <laughs> die and give it to Or just be alive and say, no, you can have that. Oh, God. Oh, oh that's brightened up my week. Has he come back at like after he's got a load of flack and then go, well, actually, this is out of context and all that? I, I, I have no idea, but <laughs> I don't care. It's fucking beautiful. Are you fair play on the uh, the interviewer, though, sort of laughing at him and saying, no, yeah. I don't think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> about laws against incest. Well, with Ben, it's not incest. I, I'm pretty sure it is. Oh, Jesus. 
I bet they're all just sitting there at Hub Post going, this is gold. Make sure this is, we definitely get this edited and put out quickly. It was live as well. Again, that's yeah. like, oh, 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 God, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. That was all incredible. Right. Okay, okay I'm, glad, I'm glad we could all have cheered up our lives together with that. <laughs> so. I can't believe that is Jeremy Irons Academy Award winning actor saying this. <laughs> Oh, he has a key prefacing of Academy Award-winning actors, <laughs> as if it's not unbelievable enough on its own. Yeah. Remember, guys, Academy Award-winning actor saying this. <laughs> this is the guy from the Academy Award who they really rate him. Academy Award-winning opinions. <laughs> yeah. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.